This morning I'm reading from Judges 6, verses 11 to 18. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abirazite, while the son, his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the land of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Do not go. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. The word of the Lord. Well, Barb's first day as liturgist, and I gave her some whopping words there. So nice job. So begins the story of Gideon. This is a story close to my heart. I have a little brother named Gideon named after this character. But, but as we'll see, Gideon is sometimes brave and inspiring, but also in the story he's not perfect. And uh, he does show times of doubting, anger, and pride. The story comes from a period called the Judges. And during this period, Israel does not have a king. They have their uh, promised land, but they haven't kicked everybody out yet. And the text has this sort of cycle. It says, and then in the next generation, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so God will bring up these opposing armies to sort of take, come in and um, sort of push around the Israelites until finally they cry out to God and God sends a person called a judge. And the judge comes in and then sort of rises up in power and, and fights off the enemy and then sort of rules and, and brings order back to the people. And then the next generation, guess what happens? Everyone does their, what's right in their own eyes and then this whole cycle sort of happens again. Uh, it's actually a very violent book. I'm surprised HBO hasn't picked this up yet. Uh, someone gets killed with a tent peg to the temple. And uh, someone gets stabbed in the restroom, believe it or not, if you go back and read the stories. Um, it's one of these books of the Bible where we realize that the Bible is sometimes descriptive but not prescriptive. In other words, when the Bible says something happened, doesn't mean you should go out and do it. Okay? No temples, uh, ten pegs to the temples this week out of you all. That's not the lesson out of the book of Judges. Judges, in fact, shows how broken people are. How broken people are. And so uh, we are jumping into this story. A group of people called the Midianites 
is now the, the sort of tool that God is using to bring Israel back in line. They come up and take crops, take livestock, so that Israel can barely su- survive. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Magnificent Seven, where the bandits come in and take all the crops and the families, just the, 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 the farmers are just barely getting by. That's what's happening here. Midianite, the Midianites coming in, taking all the crops, taking all the livestock, and leaving the people of Israel with very little so that they can barely survive. The Midianites are descendants of Midian, one of the sons of Abraham. They live to the south and the east of uh, Israel, and they worship Baal or Baal. Baal was the god of fertility. He was also the god of rain because the rain comes down and fertilizes the earth. Because he was the god of rain, he was also the god of thunder because thunder and lightning go with uh, the rain. And, and so he's also the god of war. And we have statues that have been found in uh, this region of the world of the god uh, Baal. And uh, he's typically in like a stance like this, like he's going to throw a spear, but there's a lightning bolt in his hand. And to honor, the, um, to honor this god of fertility, you often would sacrifice animals. And uh, to keep this god happy, even the Canaanites would sometimes sacrifice uh, their children to try to keep this god happy so that this god would bring, uh, would bring about good crops. The people also worshipped a god named Asherah. Asherah was considered the mother of the gods. She had given birth to some 70 other gods, according to different Canaanite legends. And guess who she had had some of those gods with? Baal, the god of fertility, right? Okay, so they are considered kind of a couple. Okay, uh, so a lot of times when you would have Baal altars, they'd be sort of round altars. that We can still find some of them in excavations today. There would often be a wooden post or um, it could be a carved post. It could be uh, clay or stone. But it was considered an Asherah. There was a pillar next to the altar where they also worshipped Asherah. So the Midianites come in and oppress these people. So God comes to this man named Gideon, son of Joash of the tribe of Manasseh. This is in the north of Israel and sort of southwest of the Sea of Galilee. We find Gideon beating wheat in a wine press. Now we, we got to get ourselves into the story and you got to understand some of the background. Normally when you beat wheat, it would be on a hill and it'd be a nice open area so that when you would hit with a stick or uh, with something, uh, when you would break the wheat and the shaft apart, the wind would take the shaft away and you'd be left with just wheat. So often we find these areas on hilltops. Okay, what's the problem with a hilltop? The problem with a hilltop is everybody can see you. And so Gideon, rather than uh, working on the wheat up there where the Midianites can find him and then can take his wheat, he's in a wine press. Now, wine presses were typically cut into rocks, so they were in secluded areas. And uh, we still can find these in the, in the, from the first century, or from these times even, uh, as well. And they would typically be a, an area in rock. And uh, when you would press wine, did anybody know what you would press wine with? Your feet, that's right, because if you press with something harder than your feet, uh, you break the seeds, and then it makes the wine very bitter. If you use your feet, it's like God made feet perfect for this. And so you would step, and then normally the juices would then drip off into another area. But, it, but it's enclosed, you understand? It's, up, it's, it's in some rocks somewhere. Okay, it's got to be in a rocky area, uh, which means not a lot of wind. 
So Gideon is having to work a lot harder to work on his wheat because he's not in the right place. Why? Because he's hiding out from the Midianites. This becomes important because the angel of the Lord comes to him. And when we hear the phrase angel of the Lord, there's a lot of debate about what this is. Um, but sometimes when the angel of the Lord uh, comes, he's actually called Yahweh. He's actually called God. And so some people even believe when we see the angel of the Lord, it's actually the pre-incarnate Jesus, meaning it's Jesus before he comes as a baby. Uh, we're not sure what this angel of the Lord phrase is. There's a lot of discussion. But what is the, what is the angel of the Lord come? He comes and says to Gideon, Hey, mighty man of valor. Now, you understand this, right? Mighty man of valor. What's he doing? He's hiding. Okay, he's hiding. There's nothing valor about this. There's nothing mighty about this. Okay, he is working like a dog to, to uh, putting in a lot of extra work on his wheat just to make sure he's hiding from the Midianites. Okay, he is not a man of valor. But the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, hey, mighty man of valor. He says he's going to deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. That Gideon should do with this with his mighty valor. And so Gideon, if you read the story, asks for a test. And uh, so what he does is he goes and he make, makes an unleavened cake and uh, gets a piece of meat and he puts it on a stone and the angel of the Lord takes a staff and touches the rock and fire comes from the rock and consumes them. The angel of the Lord tells, then tells Gideon to take some men and two bulls and tear down the altar to Baal and build a new altar and sacrifice one of the bulls there. So what, what uh, Gideon does is in the middle of the night, he gets these bulls, okay, and bulls were the tractors. They were the bulldozers of this time, right? So he uses the bulls to knock over this altar to Baal and then builds another altar, sacrifices one of their bulls in the place that was an altar to Baal. But he does this at night, right? He's still not a mighty man of valor. He does it, but he does it sneakily. The next day, the men of the town go to Joash because people know about it. The Midianites might not know who did it. But remember, he took about 10 men with him. So a number of people from the town hear that this has happened. The men go to Joash, the father of Gideon, and demand that he give Gideon to them so they can kill him to try to make peace with the Midianites. Okay, so here's the Israelite people. They don't want to mess with the Midianites. Okay, and they don't see Gideon as this mighty man of valor. So they want to kill him and give him to the Midianites as the person. They want to apologize. They want to try to make peace with their oppressors. So Joash responds to them. Will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is, God, if he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. In other words, you're going to fight for Baal? Let Baal fight for himself if he's so powerful. His altar got broken. Let him fight for it. So from then on, they start to call Gideon Jerubbaal. Okay, you get the Baal in there? Jerubbaal. Let Baal contend. Let Baal fight. And so Gideon becomes this, with this new name, and his reputation grows, he becomes this walk, walking taunt to the Midianites. And the Midianites all hear about this. And they're not happy. So they join up with another group of people called the Amalekites. These were the descendants of Amalek, a grandson of Esau. 
They're living in the south of Israel. They join armies, which we later find out is about 120,000 men between them all. And they come up to the north of Israel to what's called the Valley of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley. Okay, it's sort of to the south and uh, from your perspective to the south and west of the Sea of Galilee. And it's this thin valley, um, three to ten miles wide. It kind of gets wider as it goes towards the coast. And there's Galilean mountains on the north, uh, including a big mountain uh, called Mount Carmel, where Elijah faces off with the prophets of Baal. And uh, then it gets into Samaria to the south of it. So 120,000 men show up into this valley. By the way, this valley is also known for a city called Megiddo, a hill called Megiddo. Uh, and so that's Har Megiddo. Uh, and so Armageddon, this is the valley of Armageddon. Okay, so they're in the valley of Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley. But the book of Judges says that the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I love that. Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon like he was naked before. Okay, he's not a mighty man of valor. He's, he's, he's not. But the Spirit of the Lord clothes him. And then he sounds trumpets, sends word, and 32,000 soldiers from Israel come to fight. So, how many soldiers uh, for the Amalekites and the Midianites? 120,000. How many for the Israelites? 32,000. Now, war has changed a lot over the years, but the basic principles have remained the same. Okay? There's key key points every commander needs to pay attention to. One is position. Can I get the best defensible position on the field? Okay? One is artillery. If I can shoot you from farther away than you can shoot me, I have the advantage because I can start the fight before you do. I I can have damage before you do. Force. Do I have chariots, tanks, automatic weapons, something where I can overwhelm you? But by far, historically, the key advantage was numbers. Normally, the larger army wins because you can throw people at them. So who has the larger army? The Midianites and the Amalekites, 120,000. And they are set up on a small hill in the Jezreel Valley, which means they have the better position. Okay. And they have, by far, four times the army. Gideon, who we first met hiding in a wine press, decides it's time to test God again, right? Gideon knows these numbers, okay? He knows this is a problem. And so he decides to test God again. He asks God to make a fleece wet and the ground dry overnight. So he leaves the fleece out, okay? Make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And so God does it. And then the next night, just to be sure, Gideon does the opposite. Okay, okay, I want the ground wet and the fleece dry. And and he apologizes as he does this because he knows knows how these things go. You're not supposed to test. Deuteronomy 6.16 says not to test the Lord your God. This is the same verse Jesus quotes at his temptation. But God does it. You're not supposed to test God, but when Gideon tests God, you know what God does? He accommodates Gideon's weakness. And I love this about God. That when you and I are weak, and when you and I are doubtful, and when you and I aren't quite sure what's going to happen, God accommodates our weakness. 
He says, okay, I'll give you a little extra dose, a little extra faith, a little extra security. He doesn't get mad at us. He is tender towards Gideon. In fact, God makes then a move to make Gideon weaker, not stronger. He says in chapter 7, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So God says, you know what, 32,000 is too many. It's too many men. If I let you do this, you're all going to get excited and say, we did it, instead of realizing who really gave you the victory. So God says that anybody who is fearful, he tells Gideon to tell them, whoever is fearful and trembling can go home. So how many do we start with? Okay, 22,000 leave. 22,000 people leave. Okay. That's two-thirds of the army right there. How many do we have left? 10,000 left. 10,000 against how many Midianites? 120,000. Impossible odds. You cannot defeat an army 12 times your size. But God is not done yet. He has Gideon send the men to drink at a stream. Those who bend over and lap like a dog at the stream... He sends home. But those who cup cup their hands and drink from their hands, um, they are allowed to stay. And we don't know what this is. Some people have suggested maybe it's the best warriors that are on the lookout. You know what I mean? They're the ones that are watching for the enemy. Okay, so we get rid. Maybe it's just random. We don't know. But we had how many? 32,000. Then we dropped to how many? 10,000. And then... From here, anybody remember from Sunday school? 300 are left. 300. Against how many? 120,000. Okay, this is, I, I did the math, a quarter of a percent of the opposing army. A quarter of a percent. So 300 men go with Gideon. Now God knows Gideon is doubtful, right? He's called him a mighty man of valor, but he's still really not a mighty man of valor. And now he's only got 300 guys with him. So he tells Gideon to sneak down to the camp and listen to the Midianites. And one of the Midianites has a dream. And in this dream, there's a bunch of crumbs. So this cake sort of turns to crumbs. And then the crumbs come into the camp and, and take over a Midianite, uh, knock over a Midianite tent. And these two soldiers, he wakes up, these two soldiers are then talking about it, and then one of the Midianites tells him, chapter 7, verse 14, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midianite and all the camp. So he goes in and he hears it from the Midianites themselves. Who are the crumbs? The 300, right? They go in, and even the Midianites say, this has got to be Gideon. So they've heard of Gideon. They're scared of Gideon. They're scared in this army. They know something is up. So Gideon gathers his men, and they gear up, and they go. And I'm going to show you exactly how they gear up. I brought props. Here we go. So they have weapons. They have swords, which they probably don't put in their belts, but they do here. Okay? And uh, they take a trumpet, okay? And this would be what they had for a trumpet, would be some kind of a horn that you could blow into. And then they took torches. This is, I made this, right? 
So, this is not a real torch. Um, now, the, either they wrapped cloth and dipped it in oil and burned it, or they, in, in the first century, or in the, not the first century, this is well before the first century, uh, in their time, they, they may have had their own torches. So they may have had something like we would think of like a tiki torch, right? They may have had some kind of structure that, that lit, but same difference, you understand? So here's what they do. They put a piece of pottery, a jar, over the, uh, the torch, okay? This is brilliant, by the way, because it's the middle of the night. How do you know where you're going in the middle of the night in the dark? Well, where would the light go? Light goes down. So they've got their torches in jars. They can see where their feet are, but the enemy can't see their light real well. And there's only 300 of them, and they surround. And then they grab their trumpets, okay? And then here's what they do. Sometime in the second watch, it's the, the second watch is between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., which sounds a little bit early, but remember, in those times, they don't have electricity. They don't have clocks. So they go to bed when it gets dark, Okay? So early in the second watch, sometime around 11, midnight, uh, they've been asleep for a couple hours in the camp. Okay? So 300 men surround the army. What do they do first? They blow their trumpet. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm sorry. I'm really bad at it. Okay? They all blow their trumpet. So what happens in the camp of the Midianites? Everybody wakes up. And listen, what's the geography? Where are they? They're in a valley, and it's not a very big valley, okay? Which means when 300 trumpets go off surrounding you in the valley, it doesn't sound like 300 trumpets. It sounds like a ton of people. So they blow their trumpets. We don't know how long. They blow, they blow, they blow. So the Midianites, what do they do? They come running out of their tents, okay? Then they break the jars and hold up their lamps. So suddenly now, there's a big crash, a whole bunch of crashes, And nobody in the Midianite camp that just woke up is thinking, that doesn't sound like thousands of people. That was only about 300. Okay? (laughs) So whether they drop their horns or it's tied to them, we don't know. But then they draw their swords, and you would have heard that, right? They draw their swords, okay? And they all yell, for the Lord and for Gideon. Now remember, those people have heard the name Gideon. They're nervous about the name Gideon. So in the chaos, all these Midianites come out. They think they're surrounded. With the echo in the valley, they can't tell how many people are out there. And a mass panic ensues. They start running off. They start trying to get away. They flee. Total panic. So now, they're fleeing. Who has the light? The Israelites. They have the lamps. They have the swords. They're prepared. And it's their land. They know where they're going. The Midianites are now in total chaos. And the Israelites then start to just cut through them. As it gets to morning, more and more Israelites come to join the fight because they see the chaos. And so you have Midianites trying to fight their way through Israel to get back to their land. And you have Israelites that know the territory that are keep coming to join the fight, to join the fight, to join the fight. So, brilliant strategy. Brilliant strategy. Gideon's men pursue them as they run. More Israelites join the fight. Two Midianite princes are killed. Most of the army is destroyed. And when they finally kind of gather on the other side of the Jordan in the desert, they only have about 15,000 soldiers left. It seems like a lot. 
But when you think about how the battle has gone and how they've had to fight through Israeli territory for this long, you can understand the losses that they have felt. Now they think they're safe. They finally encamp. But Gideon and his 300 men keep pursuing, even though they're tired and even though a couple of cities will not let them have food there because they're still worried about the Midianites while their two kings are alive. And what Gideon does then is he goes further into the desert and attacks them from, well, so for your perspective, goes further into the desert and then attacks them from the east, the one way that they're probably not defending. So once again, they're caught by surprise. Their kings are killed and they flee, and that's the end of it. So Gideon is used by God to defeat these Midianites and free the people. But you also need to understand that Gideon has not been a perfect character. He's been filled with lots of doubts, right? He's also very angry at these towns that didn't help his men. And then his pride seems to get to him. They ask him to be king. They ask him to rule them. But he says, he, he seems humble. He says, don't, don't make me king. I'm not going to rule you. My children are not going to rule you. But then Gideon asks for the spoils of war. Apparently the Midianites would wear uh, earrings. And uh, would often have purple, expensive cloth. And so he asks for those things. He ends up making an, what's called an ephod. We're not totally sure what that is. In the Old Testament, it was uh, some, uh, this breastplate that the priest wore. The way it is described, it's worshipped in this text. So whether he takes that and puts it on an idol, or whether he expects people in the end to worship him, we're not totally sure. But what the text does tell us, if you read the story later, and I hope you do, is that it becomes a snare or a trap for his family. Gideon has this big family. He has many wives. The text says he has 70 sons. One of his sons, Abimelech, actually has his own tragic story where he goes to rule the people and then loses out. And in the end, Gideon seems to have done exactly what God was worried Israel would do. Right? God said, you have too many people. If you do this, you're going to feel like you did it. And you're going to brag. And it's going to be about you. And in the end, it's kind of like that's what happened to Gideon too. Now, I am sorry if that's a bummer of an ending for the story. I didn't write it. Uh, And I'm sure HBO would change it. Um. But I think this is important for our reading of Scripture because most stories in the Bible actually have bad endings. Most of the best characters, in the end, you see their flaws. Why? Because there's only one character in the Bible that gets a really good ending. And it's Jesus. And it looks touch and go there for a little while. Right? There's this whole cross thing. Cross looks like a bad story. It looks like sin wins, that evil ends. But then there's a resurrection and new life. So part of what the judges teach us is that we need Jesus, right? That guess what happens in the next generation? They all do right in their own eyes, right? Guess what you all are going to do this week? Guess what I'm going to do later today? I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to struggle with this same thing. That's why we need Jesus. But let let me highlight two quick lessons from Gideon. First, I think you and I should find it pretty hopeful that God uses imperfect people. Do you have doubts? Do you think you're not good enough? Good. Maybe that's exactly where God needs you right now. 
Sometimes God needs us to be weak so that he can be strong. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And what does God, what God does with Gideon is often what he does with us. He takes us not where we're gifted, but where we're weak and where we're scared. And he chooses to work through those things. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't like it. I wish God would use me where I'm strong. Use me, you know, God, give me a bigger budget. Why do I need a smaller budget? Why do I need a little army? Why don't you use me where I'm gifted, where I'm good? But that is exactly the way of Jesus. That is exactly the way of the cross. That God uses weakness so that he is shown to be strong. And second, at the end of this story is a reminder of how you and I should deal with success, isn't it? Pride and entitlement are snares for us. They're snares for our families and for future generations. And so we should stay humble and remember who really gave us the victory. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now I pray that you would be like Gideon. May the Spirit of the Lord clothe you. May he weaken you and may his strength and might be made perfect in your weakness. And as you go, may you not be like Gideon. May you stay faithful, hopeful, and humble in your successes. Amen.